Welcome. Um, we have a, visitors here tonight from literally across the globe, so welcome to y'all. Um, if anybody, any of the Canadians are feeling a little out of place, you can talk to Amy Paul because she's adjusted. She'll tell you how to cope with America. But welcome to those who are here from the UK, from other parts of the States. My name is Fran. I have the privilege of bringing a message tonight. We have been doing a sermon series through the Jesus Story Bible, which is an interesting way of giving our congregation an overview of Scripture. Hey, can I have the clicker? Thanks. Um, and the challenge is to take the story as it's been told to children, use the emphasis in the story, and then make it relevant to a congregation of adults. So the story we have tonight is about Leah. Leah and her sister, Rachel, were married to the same fellow, Jacob. So you know we're in for something, and I bet you can't wait to know how that showed up in the children's Bible. <laughs> Being a dutiful student, um, besides the, the Jesus Story Bible, I took myself to the seminary Library and came up with this interesting resource. It's called Swapping Housewives, the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. More and more intriguing. But I'll tell you what, when Mike asked me to do this sermon about the girl nobody wanted, the first book I thought of, interestingly enough, was this little one called Grandma Remembers. Anybody ever seen a book like this? My daughter gave it to me. The idea is it asks all sorts of questions. What were your first childhood memories? What kind of pets did you have? What was school like back in your day, Grandma? What were your, was your relationship with your siblings like? Tell us about your parents. And I tell you, when she handed it to me, I physically clutched because I don't want to remember so much of the childhood memories. See, I was the girl that nobody wanted. I was a very unexpected change of life baby. My siblings are 18, 16, and 9 years older. The last thing my parents had in mind was to have a fourth child at the ages of 44 and 42. Now, I have to say, I was always physically cared for, not a wit of abuse in the family, but I would say a pretty severe emotional neglect. Um, I remember being called the pest. You're underfoot. Get off my lap. Get out of the way. You're too heavy. Shut up. Leave me alone. I was the girl nobody wanted. And so when I saw the take on the Jesus Story Bible, I was like, oh, God, this is going to be half sermon half story night, as we love to do here at SCUM when we tell testimonies. And the theme, if there's a theme that will carry through, it's how do you go through life when you're in a situation you just cannot change and cannot control? Because that's certainly what these two women, Leah especially, found herself in, married with her sister to the same man, and we'll see, much against 
her inclinations, well, we think. We got to skip several chapters from last week's story of um, Abraham and his son Isaac. Isaac grew up. Isaac married Rebecca. Isaac had, well, Rebecca had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Names are very significant in Old Testament times. Esau was hairy and ruddy. He was an outdoorsman, and I can picture him just unkempt and loving the outdoors and smelling like he loved the outdoors. Jacob's name means grasping the heel. He literally came from the womb holding on to his brother's heel as if he had wanted to be first and was trying to pull Esau back in, but Esau was the firstborn. Grasping the heel is an idiom for sly and conniving. And Jacob lived into his name. There was a point at which he fairly much bullied his brother Esau into giving him the birthright, the promise of privileges and responsibility and inheritance that should have gone to the firstborn. So Jacob got that from his brother Esau. When Isaac, their father, was old and virtually blind, Jacob, with his sly mother's help, dressed up like Esau, put on his clothes so he smelled like the outdoors and even maybe covered his hands with some animal skin so he felt more hairy, and went to his blind father and tricked him out of even more blessings that were supposed to go to the firstborn. At this point, Esau said he was mad enough to kill his brother. And Jacob thought this might be a good time to leave home and go find himself a wife. So basically, he's traveling from that smaller bit down there in what is now modern-day Israel up to Haran, which nowadays is probably just over the border into Turkey, about 500 miles, to escape the anger of his brother, who is angry because of all the tricks and maneuverings that Jacob had played on him. So, you know, if you thought the Bible was full of lovely examples, I'm sorry to disillusion you, but it's also full of many dire warnings. Um, Nothing in the story is something that necessarily commends ourselves to practice as they did. But man, we learn an awful lot from the machinations. Um, And God uses flawed families continuing his pursuit of redemption. So Jacob makes it up to Haran. He meets his sister's brother, Laban. And believe me, trickery runs in the family. And Laban agrees to take him home, and he's going to live with his brother Laban while he's looking for a wife. Um, I guess at this point we can actually pick up the text from Genesis 29. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. I always thought that was very generous of Laban until other authors pointed out to me that Laban is basically reducing Jacob from the privileges of being a family member to a hired servant. I'm going to pay you 
but now I can treat you any way I dang well please because I'm basically denying that you're part of the family. We, we've got one trickster going in against another here. It's awesome. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah. The name of the younger one was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Most translations will tell you that uh, these weak eyes, some kind of a vision defect, or that Leah was just ugly compared to her sister Rachel. Leah was the girl the children's Bible says nobody wanted. They put it this way. Rachel was the kind of girl who always gets invited to parties and chosen for the team. Everyone loved her. And poor Leah, no one hardly ever noticed her. But this idea of weak eyes could again be an idiom to mean that she was very gentle or delicate, a very sensitive person. I was a very sensitive kid. I cry. I mean, I still do it. You can ask Mike. I can cry at the drop of a hat if you look at me the wrong way. And that can be a real turnoff, I know, when you're that sensitive. But whatever it is, Leah definitely didn't have the, per- the social advantage that her younger sister did. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So they basically wrote a wedding contract at that point. It was a seven-year engagement. And it seems really unfair that Jacob would have to work for seven years to provide a dowry for Rachel. But the idea back in the day was the dowry was money that the husband would give to the father in case anything ever happened to the husband the father had a nest egg to continue caring for the daughter and any children that had come from the union. That's what Laban was supposed to do with the dowry money. I assure you he did not, but that's in another chapter that we don't get to read about. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time's completed. I want to make love to her putting it pretty bluntly. I mean, they'd been engaged, and now he wanted to consummate the the marriage. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And you're thinking, how could you not know what woman you're making love to? Well, as the children's Bible says, Back then, they didn't have electricity, and it was dark. And, but not just that. The women wore veils. And there's, you know, know, if I can be this blunt, there's no indication that they undressed at all. And I'm sorry, in the 21st century, it's probably easier than it used to be to imagine a guy so drunk he doesn't know who he's sleeping with. Sad. But it didn't originate this century. So... I like the way, now you can imagine what the reaction was. Whoops. Oh, and by the way, this shows up later. Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as an attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. The children's Bible puts it this way. The next morning, Jacob woke up and screamed. His new wife was laying beside him, but it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. Jacob jumped out of bed. Laban, he cried, you scoundrel. 
In the NIV, it says, so Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Oh, good words coming from the guy who tricked his own father and brother out of the privileges. And now he's complaining that it's turned around and somebody else in the family did it to him. Well, Laban replied, well, it's not our custom here to give the youngest daughter in marriage before the older one. Yeah, you could have mentioned that seven years ago. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we'll give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. Now, let me note again, the text is not trying to justify polygamy at this point. In fact, if you skip ahead a few books up to... What did I do? Didn't do it. Mosaic law is given. The scripture clearly forbids polygamy. It's messy. You don't want to go there. Um, but... As I said, scripture doesn't all, it can tell you a real life story without condoning what's going on in the story. So after the party ends a week later, Jacob now has Rachel as well. Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah. Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife and gave his servant Billa to be to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked another seven years. His love for Rachel from the start was always greater than his love for Leah, and Leah was now stuck in this marriage. Don't even think about it now, because you'll never be able to concentrate on the rest of the sermon, but what was going through Leah's mind that first night was she just a pawn in her father's plan with no other option was she complicit in this trick because I mean she wouldn't be the only woman in the world who said if he marries me he'll love me either way it didn't work she craved Jacob's love And Jacob always loved Rachel more. Well, the story goes on. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Now, names I said are very significant. Look at the names Leah gives her children. Reuben, the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Simeon, because the Lord's heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. Levi, now at last my husband will become attached to me. I've borne him three sons. Judah, this time I will praise the Lord. Here is a desperate woman. Obviously marriage hasn't gotten her love. Surely getting pregnant will, bearing sons will. Nothing. Jacob loved Rachel, and Leah was the girl nobody wanted. Rachel wasn't bearing children. The story gets weirder. Each woman in turn decides to give their servant to Jacob because if the servant has children, they technically belong to the wife. Through Billa, Rachel has a son, Dan, and says, God has vindicated me. You see the love between the sisters. Billa, Rachel's servant, has another boy. I've had a great struggle with my sister, and I have one. Zilpah. As a child, that would be Leah's. What good fortune, How happy I am. The women will call me blessed. And then comes the interlude with mandrakes. Oh, the mandrakes. Well, here's significance. 
Mandrakes were a plant that were considered to be a fertility drug or an aphrodisiac. They were very rare in Haran, but Leah's son found some. Rachel wanted to buy them because Rachel has not had children. Leah says, I will sell them to you in exchange for an extra night with Jacob. Rachel agrees. The NIV puts it this way. Um, Where am I? um, So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, he said. She said, I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night, and Leah conceives. Rachel's holding the mandrakes. Leah's having the babies. Rachel is loved. Leah is not. Leah has children. Rachel doesn't. It's getting to the point between these two sisters that their hatred and competition for each other is totally overwhelming any thought they have of love. At this point, Jacob is nothing but a breeding machine. And competition and jealousy gone wrong can do that. It can destroy love. Neither of them at this point is really thinking of who the man loves. They're hiring him by the night in order to one-up each other. That is the desperation that somebody who feels unwanted could come to. Keep going. Leah has another son. God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. Is this effed up or what? God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor. I have borne him six sons. And then Leah had a daughter named Rachel. I mean, named Dinah. She shows up later in scripture too. I'll be really surprised if that story makes it into the children's Bible. There may well have been others. Eventually, just to end it off, Rachel does conceive a son called Joseph. God has taken away my disgrace. May the Lord add to me another son. She doesn't dwell on the happiness too long. And then later she has a second son, Benjamin, and dies in childbirth. What a messed up situation. Stuck in a situation that could not change, couldn't control, and wrong reactions just disintegrated the heart of Leah to the point where she was hiring her husband in order to birth more children. And it seemed like almost forgetting that his love had been her first goal. You know, when when I was little, I didn't have the words emotionally neglected in my vocabulary, but I knew what it was like to compete for attention. I was the pest. I was... Oh, Craig is laughing. Thank you, husband. Oh, my family will tell you the stories to this day. Um, They delight in the stories of some of the antics I had. Um, Underfoot, smarth mouth, doing, doing what a child will do when a child craves attention. And eventually learning to be very manipulative of people to get my way, while at the same time learning to hold them at arm's length so they could never get close enough to hurt me, learning that performance will get you someone's attention, at least in school, if you can be a, you know, a good student or an athlete or 
great in the band or something. Very jealous of friends who seem to be so at ease and make friends easily. And I even had a hard time going to the home of friends that had happy families because I would just be possessed with jealousy and unable to enjoy the time with them. According to C.S. Lewis, I was living in a hell that I had made for myself with the jealousy. C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, we have to picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives with the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Because, you know, at some point, as a, as a child, my actions were probably just natural. I didn't know what else to do. So you know, I was in your face and on your lap. And... But as I got older, and it turned to a conscious manipulation and bitterness and anger, then it became something I needed to own. And actions that had sustained me in childhoods became habits that absolutely constrained me as an adult. A critical spirit, and I can apologize right now. Some of you have seen the end of my unresolved issues. Critical spirit, jealousy, a drive to perform. Um, they, they become woven in and justified even in the better aspects of life, caring for family, ministry, um, mixing with friends, very mixed motives. You know, coming to Christ didn't immediately wipe my slate clean and make me a well-performing, functioning, happy, easy-to-be-with adult. So relearning how to live with an unchangeable situation has always been a major part of my spiritual journey and spiritual life. My parents both died a month apart when I was 28. There's no going back. There's no resolving it with them. There's no discussion, no conversation. Two of my siblings have died since then. When I asked my sister questions, she says, you know, I really don't remember much about my childhood. I'm like, oh, what I remember, I don't want to remember. Occasionally something gets from my head through to my heart, and yeah, counseling helps a lot. Been there several times. Not perfected yet, but I think I'm beginning to get a, a little quicker at recognizing symptoms of living out in an unhealthy way, a situation that at this point in time I just I can't do anything about. And repenting, because repentance, the word repentance, Greek, metanoia, means turning. So I need to turn from bad habits to new habits. So I want to tell you a couple things that help me cope through life with something I can't change. And overarching all of it, number one is, first of all, just admitting. Admitting it and accepting it. Because whether it's an emotional neglect or whether it had been a physical abuse or a broken family, um, part of all of us have a desperate desire to control. And we will do that by denying we will do that by numbing through an addiction. We will do it through a substitution, maybe performing in this area to make up for what I'm not receiving in another area. Um, 
retelling the story in a way that's just not true because it sounds better and it's easier to live with. But I have to accept that there was a problem and that into adulthood I exacerbated my own problems. But there was a a flaw from the get-go that is hard to say but has to be said. So I accept that this is the reality of my childhood. And having accepted, now we can get to some more, I think, practical things. What am I going to do? Well, I would say the first thing is to always have in the back of your back pocket, bring it out to the forefront, the idea of just looking up to God in praise of his character. Now, I hasten to add, not in some, not in some fictitious denial type of way, like Jesus is my savior and everything's just happy in Jesus. It is not. Not a fake worship, not a fake praise, not a substitution for doing the hard work of healing that needs to be done, but a genuine praise. I mean, I'm going to invite you right now. Y'all wake up. And just shout out some of the attributes of God that help you in a difficult situation. When you think of these, what helps you? Go. Mercy. Patience. Faithfulness. Kindness. Sacrifice. He cares about individuals. Kind. Generous. I often think of the Lord's consistency, faithfulness, his perfection, his love, mercy, justice. Um, Realizing that, yeah, I live in a fallen world, but I serve a perfect creator. And sometimes just, and I can't get into it in this space of time, but realizing the character of God, the perfection of God, is a great way to begin to live with a situation here on earth that I can't change. See, this, this desire for love, desire for attention, God put that in us. He gave us desire. But he, you know, St. Augustine said, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. But my goodness, don't we go through life looking for substitutes. Because we are so convinced that whatever we find on this earth, be it human love, be it sexual expression, we are convinced that we will get what we want sooner. But desire implanted in us by God is ultimately a desire for him. And if this idea of worshiping God still seems seems hard, it doesn't seem like you can come to him with the difficulty of the situation that you're in. Just start in the Psalms. Because man, did David know how to pour out his heart to the Lord and admit the awfulness of situations and find strength in just pursuing the character of God himself.
But I also think we need to look in. I'm responsible for what goes on in my heart and in my head and in my mind. Um, the author of this book, Swapping Housewives, is a bishop in the African-American Methodist Episcopal, what is it, the AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And she says, don't awfulize your situation. It's not 100% bad. Don't let your mind go down that route, that there is nothing good, salvageable, worthwhile. Um, Because fixation on securing my own happiness just leads me to see the whole world is against me. I'm the victim of everything. Any, Any physical or emotional touch is ajar and just sets me off. I have vigilance when I don't even need to be vigilant. Stop. Just stop it, Bob Newhart said. But don't indulge, don't indulge those thoughts. Stop the thought process that leads to caving in to the temptation to even worse sins of manipulation or whatever you're doing to handle the, the situation. Gratitude is one excellent way to train your brain. Um, Savannah gave me these great articles on how a mental attitude of gratitude can actually, scientists have found, actually changes your physiology. So they, they used to just think you felt good, you know, if, you're, if you feel grateful and you feel good about yourself, then you feel better. And it was just a circular argument that meant it sounded too wishy-washy. But by studying the brain, scientists have shown that if you start thinking about gratitude in some situations, it will relax the heart and relax the muscles and improve the sleep patterns and decrease the anxiety. And and then the spiral can go up instead of down. And so I have to think with gratitude about other aspects of family life. Um, Vacations. On the Hudson learning to water ski, learning to sew. My parents really, in 1972, they sacrificed tremendously to send me on a 10-day trip to Spain that cost $400. Yeah, airfare, hotels, all-inclusive. That was big bucks, especially in our family. So gratitude. Start with the mental... It'll change the physiology. will make the mental easier. Third thing is to look out and appreciate and care about others. It's in the Beatitudes, but also in Romans 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not become, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Now, Leah... Obviously hadn't gotten this because, man, she was, she was just hell-bent on revenge and vindictiveness, and her sister was too. <clears throat> so two things I get out of this is, you know, overcome evil with good because upping the ante and escalating the argument or the tit-for-tat actions will not solve the issue. Humanity has an ability to escalate tremendously. Um, someone has to have the courage to stop the animosity and to stop the escalation, to reach out and serve the enemy. And also I have to remember 
and this gets into other situations than just family, if it was bad for me, again, it wasn't 100% bad, and other people were not affected in the same way. I mentioned good memories from childhood, things my parents had done for me. And I think of a, a boss I worked with once. There is no way on earth this fellow and I could get along. But every other employee loved him to death, thought he walked on water. Guess what? It was a personality thing. And yes, I got badly treated in my opinion, but I couldn't go bad-mouthing him because it wasn't a universal totality problem with him. It was him and me. I often think um, my two little checks and balances in this case are if I don't get along with somebody and I hear Tabitha speaking well of them, do I feel compelled to say, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. Let me tell you what they're really like. Or can I appreciate that the person's done good for someone else? Or I think of it even you know, more abstractly. What happens if I show up at the pearly gate and this person I can't stand shows up at the same time? Am I going to be mad that he's there? Am I going to say, you first? Or am I going to start arguing with St. Peter about why it should be me and only me? There are some practical ways um, to actually serve those who have hurt us, who we have to continue to have relationships with, and we don't have to make them the devil incarnate. I have a lot of motivation to learn to deal in healthy ways with situations that I can't control. Um, I love my creator. I honor my Lord. I want to honor all those others that he created. I want to deal with my own crap before it gets passed on to the next generation and the next generation because I can see through these stories in Scripture how dysfunction and bad habits get passed on. Here's my motivation. Aww. He got his red hair for me, folks. But look at this verse. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I think it was the Holy Spirit that pierced my heart with this verse years ago to realize that my bitterness will defile many. My bitterness could be infectious. My bitterness could mess up my children, my children's children, could mess up my marriage. I don't want that. I have motivation to learn how to walk through life in as healthy a manner as possible in a situation that I can't change. Remember the character of God. Praise God. Guard your heart and mind and appreciate and care for others. We have an opportunity now, as we go into communion, to realize that we have a level playing field in Christ. Our Creator and our Savior welcomes all to come to this table, take a piece of bread or a gluten-free cracker, dip it in the cup of wine, the bread representing the body of Christ, the wine representing the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ that has brought redemption 
into the realm of possibility for any one of us that puts our faith in him. Before we have communion, um, I thought if we're going through the children's Bible, I can use a children's song to close this out as a time of meditation. So the song, God Help the Outcasts, from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, should have been prime viewing for most of you when you were kids. Um, I think we all see ourselves at some time or another as the cast out, the abandoned one, the one that's mocked, the one that doesn't fit in. But the truest sense of acceptance we will ever have is at this table when the body and blood of Christ are taken as a representation of our sins forgiven and our lives secured in him. So I'm going to ask that we play this, and then those who are helping with communion when it's over will have stations up front and in the back. And if you're aiming toward Jesus with 100% certainty or a little bit of uncertainty, if you're aiming toward Jesus, you're welcome to receive communion. So we'll do that right after the song. And prayer will be available down in the prayer cave. I don't know if you can hear me Or if you're even there I don't know if you would listen To a gypsy's prayer Yes, I know I'm just an outcast I shouldn't speak to you Till I see your face and wonder Were you once an outcast too? God help the outcasts Hungry from birth Show them the mercy They don't find on earth God help my people, we look to you still. God help the outcasts, where nobody will. I ask for wealth, I ask for fame, I ask for glory to shine on. I can possess. I ask for God and His angels to bless me. I ask for nothing I can get by, but I know so many less lucky than I. God. 